Well, good morning. Glad you guys are here this morning. Glad you guys are joining us. For those of you who are joining us online, we're glad that you guys are taking some time out of your day to, uh, to be together, even when we're not physically together, to worship together. And, and uh, um, I, I hope that as we're worshiping together, that you're rejoicing and celebrating with us, because um, we really do believe that he is the God who turns our mourning into dancing. And uh, I just love the celebration of that song. It doesn't ignore the brokenness of the world we live in, uh, but we believe that God is bigger than all these things and he's good and able in all of it. And, and so I'm glad you're joining us. Hey, um, we are going to be getting into the book of Matthew. So if you have a Bible with you or if you have a phone and you want to open the Bible app, you go to Matthew 14 is where we're going to be. Um, we're going to be looking at most of Matthew 14, but we're actually just going to be looking at one verse today. So if you don't have a Bible with you, don't worry, I'll read the one verse. But before we get to it, um, I made a promise that I now need you to help fulfill. Sound like a good deal? Let me tell you the promise I made. So some of you saw earlier this week, um, we uh, we put an email out, and it was kind of a last-minute idea, and, and we thought, we're, we're going to start this tradition of, of every Martin Luther King Jr. Day of organizing a service day, and so we've got people coming tomorrow to um, participate in the service day, and uh, we were trying to figure out what to do for that service day, because like I said, it was totally kind of last-minute, and I got an email from Katie Schaub, who's at Ovenbird Bakery, and if she's watching, she's going to really hate that I'm um, giving her the shout-out, but I'm going to tell her anyways, because I'm the one with the microphone in front the camera and she's not, so she can't stop me. So um, Katie Schaub sent me an email and said, uh, whatever you're doing, I'd like to make a bunch of cookies for it. I said, well, that's, that's awesome. So uh, Katie Schaub donated um, over 700 cookies. I have stacks, of, well, now there's about 600 cookies, of stacks and stacks <laughs> left in my truck, of my truck. And so um, he, here's what we're gonna do. One of the things we're gonna do tomorrow for Martin Luther King Jr. Day that I need some help with is um, 2020 and now into 2021 has, uh, obviously we've heard, we don't wanna belabor, it's, it's been a uh, difficult season for many of us. And um, uh, educators are, um, you know, many who've taken some of the hardest transition in our community, um, having to try and figure out how to teach online, and now they're back in the building, but they're still doing Zoom, and soon they're going to start transitioning to doing in-person and all, and it's, and it's just chaos and a mess and all that kind of stuff. And so we wanted to make together um, just kind of gift boxes. Like, we see you, we, we are so grateful for the sacrifice for many um, of you that see this as really a calling on you to serve and love the children of our community. And we want you to know that um, we believe that God sees you, that he loves you, and, um, uh, and that we want to be uh, people of grace and mercy and peace. And so we want to make these boxes up. Now, here's the deal. I've got enough cookies to stuff 60 boxes. And as much as no teacher is going to be disappointed that they got a bunch of cookies, we wanted to add more to it than just cookies. So um, tomorrow we're going to be making these boxes for 60 for all of the staff at MES. It's our closest school to us. And um, uh, the principal there, Kim Seidel, she, she goes to church there so she can help me out with some things. And I asked her for some ideas of some things that teachers would appreciate. 
right? Some things that would be nice and all that kind of stuff. And she gave me two ideas. They're really unexciting. Uh, so I'm going to tell you what they are, and then you need to help me come up with better ideas. I love you, Kim, okay? Um, this is one thing she said. She said, teachers love good pens, okay? Good pens. And here's what she said. She said, if you can buy them in a pack of six or 12, they're not worth opening, Okay? So when you go to Walmart and they have all those stacks and you can buy them in 24, like those aren't like good gel pens. She also said teachers were generally an odd uh, creature and love sticky notes, right? And so those are the two ideas she came up with. But here's the call, okay? Here's the last minute, pan not panic, last minute uh, call to invite you to be a part of uh, what we wanna do in, in serving and loving our community. This is just one tiny little opportunity is today, for you to go and buy some stuff that you would want in a uh, uh, survival kit or a thank you kit to honor and love the teachers at uh, the elementary school here. And so, um, whatever, I mean, maybe five of something, maybe you wanna buy five of something, we're gonna be making 60 boxes, so if you wanna buy one for every box, and then here's what's gonna happen. Whatever shows up, in the next 24 hours, we're gonna sort out, we're gonna put in boxes, and um, shh, don't tell them, even though it's being broadcast online. Uh, we're gonna sneak in and we're gonna leave them as a surprise for the teachers on Tuesday. Um, uh, just want them to know that, that we see them because there's a God who sees them and loves them. And so, I wanna encourage you, challenge you, invite you, ask you to fulfill a promise I made to make these um, uh, thank you boxes for teachers. And so today, go somewhere and buy something. It, I don't care what it is, buy something. And the next important question you're gonna ask is like, what you do with it? And there's a breezeway. Um, if you come to the church and you come into our parking lot, it's, uh, I call them the grocery store doors. You know what I'm talking about? because they're only at grocery stores and our church. And they're the doors out here, and there's a little breezeway. You can put them inside there. They'll stay dry, and if you want to know, I'm not really concerned that somebody's going to show up at 3 in the morning to steal a bunch of gel pens and sticky notes. So you can just leave them there, and, um, and let's just... Can, this has always been a church uh, of abundant generosity and grace. And we believe as a church, it's one of our values, that you can't outgive God. And so I want to invite you in this season uh, to be a part of that in just a small way. Go pick something up that you think a teacher would love to have, whether it's a coffee gift card or a movie rental or a, a bunch of candy or a bunch of chocolates. And tomorrow, uh, by the time we go to pack them and there's 300 cookies left, we'll stuff the 300 cookies that are left from the 700 that Katie gave us. Which, by the way, hey, if you ever need an excuse to go to Ovenburg Bakery, if you haven't been to Ovenburg Bakery, this is your excuse. Go tell Katie thank you and go buy stuff from her and go get fat to the glory of God. Amen? There you go. See? There you go. Uh, okay. Um, Matthew 14. Uh, Matthew 14 tells us um, a couple stories. Uh, one of them, one of them is, is actually one of my more favorite stories because it's so brutally uncomfortable. I mean, to be honest, that something about the story is actually a little shocking that it's in the Bible. It, it would seem more appropriate, an episode of Game of Thrones. Uh, the story is about the end of John the Baptist's life. Now, because of the context, the way we're doing church, that there, that there are kids in the room here, and we don't know exactly who's watching on, I'm going to be very generic about how we talk about what went on in that story. Um, but, but know this, the events that led to John the Baptist's beheading was grotesque. 
by any more set of moral standards, what happened that led to John the Baptist's head being removed from his shoulders and placed on a platter and given to a teenage girl is disgusting and repulsive. And one of the, one of the reasons, if I'm gonna be real honest, one of the reasons that I really love this story is because it's stories like this that should suppress, should absolutely reject any claim that God's ultimate desire for you is for you to be healthy and wealthy and prosperous. Because John the Baptist, John the Baptist, he, he, you, there may be some people that you hold in high regard, right? You, you may, you, there may be some spiritually, there may be, you know, Billy Graham, might be someone that you think of as, man, God did incredible things through him. M maybe, maybe someone like Matt Chandler or John Mark Comer, or there are these people that you think of like, man, God does these incredible things in these people's lives, and they don't hold a candle. They wouldn't make the JV team compared to John the Baptist. John the Baptist's birth was foretold in Scripture. Billy Graham's was not. I don't know if you know that. John the Baptist's birth was foretold. God, God called him. God said, this is going to be my instrument that's going to prepare the way. One time in human history, John the Baptist's calling and, and, and coming was a once in all of human history. It was to prepare the way for the Messiah. And he comes through miraculous birth, which again, you know, your parents may not have expected your birth, but it was unlikely that it was miraculous. But John the Baptist was miraculous and unexpected. And John the Baptist is born. And John the Baptist, I mean, that's his prophet that prepares the way for Jesus. Jesus himself, Jesus, God, says of John the Baptist, he says, there's no man born of a woman greater than John the Baptist. Of all the, the rest of the people that we hear of stories in Scripture, almost every single one of them, uh, Joseph maybe is the only other example, but Joseph also kind of bragged to his brothers about the uh, coat of many colors that his dad gave him. So that might, he, that might not be a sinful thing, but that's probably just an unwise thing, right? Kind of, he ended up almost dead because of it. But every other person that we have recorded in Scripture has flaws, has failures. Peter denies Jesus. Paul tries murdering Jesus' followers, right? All these great, David had a problem, right? All these great men of faith have problems. John the Baptist, not a one dedicates the fullness of his life to following Jesus, lives in, in abject poverty out by a river, declaring in the face of the religious and the powerful and the government elites the goodness of God and, and God's call to repentance and all these things that they declare, he declares boldly. And his head, at 32 years old, ends up on a platter. 32 years old. I don't think that I've taught on John the Baptist uh, since I passed the age that he was killed. And it was really like a sobering thing to think about the fact that now as I stand here at 35 years old, I've lived longer than John the Baptist did. And this man of great, unwavering faith ends up with his head lopped off because of the perverseness and the brokenness and the wickedness of men and their desire for absolutely immoral and unethical satisfaction. John the Baptist.
ends up with his head on a platter. What I want to look at, though, is what happens after that. Well, what happened? Because, see, the story that, if you have a Bible, you probably have a heading on your Bible, and um, if you look at John 14, at least this is the way mine has it, John 14, it says, John the Baptist beheaded. And then verse 13, which is the verse we're going to look at today, verse 13, it says this, 5,000 fed. You see, um, our tendency is to want to move past the ugly and the brokenness. Our tendency is to read the story of the John the Baptist, but so quickly want to get to the feeding of the 5,000. Our tendency is not to want to have to sit in the ugliness or to deal with the absolute wickedness and the brokenness and the evil, but we want to move on, and we want to move on to one of our favorite children's church stories. We want to move on to this story of God's provision and miraculous provision. And, and what it is, we, we do it all the time. What it is, it's a, it's a, it's a form of, 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 of spiritual self-medication. I mean, think about, think about that. Just think about the worship songs we sing. If you look throughout the book of Psalms, there are these whole sections of songs that the Hebrew people would sing called songs of of lament. But we don't want those. We want praise and worship. We want to rejoice. We want to talk about his goodness and we want to talk about him parting the waters. And he did all those things and those are all good and those are all God honoring. But when we move straight from the the heartbreak of the brokenness we live into to the mountaintop experiences of Jesus, we rob ourselves of all that the Holy Spirit wants to do in us. When we move straight away from the valley low, shadow of darkness, broken and painful agony, bitterness and anger and, and, and remorse and mourning, when we move straight from that to mountaintop to mountaintop to mountaintop, we miss, we deprive ourselves of a gift, of a gift. You see, it's not what Jesus did. You, you see it? You get your Bible, Matthew 14? <clears throat> Let's read it. <clears throat> one verse today. We got one verse. This is why it's been three years and we're still in the book of Matthew. One verse right here. It says this. Now, when Jesus heard about John, okay? John, miraculous, amazing, powerful man of God, prophet of God, called of God, once in all of human history guy. But not only that, but Jesus hears about John, his beloved cousin, okay, dear family member, he withdrew from there in a boat to a secluded place by himself. In all the things that we can imagine in the moment when Jesus heard of John's death, just wicked, um, unfair death, there's a lot of things we could imagine Jesus having done. I mean, we could have imagined that the disciples came and oh, John's disciples came and he got word, they got word to Jesus and, and uh, you know, Peter, I mean, Peter, they, you know, they would have known John. Some of them were actually John's disciples before they were Jesus' disciples. And, and you can imagine that there would have been mourning and sadness, this dear friend and leader that they had. And, you know, they, they, they could have started to kind of turn their eyes down and maybe get a little teary-eyed and a little sad. And, you know, we could have imagined that, that Jesus would look at him and say, why are you crying? 
Don't you know? Don't you, don't you know? Don't you know God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose? Why are you crying? Don't you know the reward that John the Baptist has received? Jesus could have looked at him and he could have said, why are you crying? Dude, I know the streets that John now walks, and let me tell you, it's better than here. Jesus could have looked at his disciples and he said, why why are you crying? I'm the one who just looked in the whites of his eyes in, in this eternal, weird, crazy way that we can't understand how God works, that Jesus is the one who looks in the whites of, of John the Baptist's eyes the very moment that his head is decapitated, and he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Why are you crying? But he doesn't. He doesn't. I mean, th- this, this, may seem, this may seem so simple and so obvious, but look at what our Messiah does. In the face of brokenness, in the face of great agony, in the face of great mourning, look at what he does. Now, when Jesus heard about John, he withdrew from there. Sometimes the greatest act of worship is withdrawal. Sometimes the greatest thing you can do to draw your soul closer to Jesus is to retreat. Is to retreat. Is to withdraw. To be with the Lord. See, a lot of times we think of uh, worship is this. Worship is worship is um, giving worth and honor and value to something. Now, what we translate that as, most of the time what we think of that as, is that worship is giving our best to God. And that might be true. There might be times where worship is giving your best to God, but that's not what worship is. Worship is declaring that something or someone or some cause is worthy of everything of who you are. That it is no less an act of worship to sing and to celebrate his grace and his mercy and his kindness than it is to withdraw and to weep. Because you see, when we withdraw and we weep, we acknowledge that the only one who can hold all of us, including all of our brokenness and the brokenness of this world, is God himself. When we run from the brokenness and ugliness of this world and we want to, uh, you know, here's, here's the thing that's just mind-boggling to me. I, I, just, I can't even comprehend how this got connected with Christianity. But when we think that what it means to follow Jesus is to like tough it out and to get through it and to push through and to discipline yourself and by your bootstraps pull yourself up, it, it, Jesus... I don't know. Jesus spoke all of creation into existence. Do you know that? It says, it says that it's that all things, well, in Genesis it tells us that God spoke and that everything was created, and then it tells us in the New Testament that through him and in him and for things, all things were created. Jesus spoke by his words. He just said, moon, boop. And in his perception, it was probably about this big, you know, and he's like, earth, boop. We're just going to, I'm going to push that sucker around. Look at that. It's going to spin. Look at that. Isn't that cool? Holy Spirit, look what I just did. Look at that. We got to make a couple more of those, right? 
He spoke everything into existence. He, he is in this, this is Jesus. This is the God we worship. Just understand the fullness of his nature. He is fully, completely man, but he is fully and completely God. And in the moment that he sits there and he hears the news about John the Baptist, he also is actively present in some way that our temporal bodies and minds can just not fathom. He's actively present in the moment of all of creation. He's actively present as he hangs on the cross. He's actively present with us today because he is outside of time and he, he knows. He knows the reward that John's received. He knows what God's doing. He knows the end. We read about it in the book of Revelation, right? He's like, he's like John, I, I know what's going to happen. Don't worry about it. You're going to write this book about the end time. And it's going to, you know, a lot of people are going to sell a lot of books about their interpretations of the, this book that you wrote. But I know the story at the end. He knows it all. And when he hears the words of the death of his cousin, he, Jesus, who holds all things together, had to retreat. What absurdity is it that we think that in the face of the brokenness of this world that we can just discipline ourselves or grit ourselves or push ourselves through. What absurdity. Jesus retreats. It doesn't tell us in this story specifically, but we know the story of Lazarus and it tells us in the story of Lazarus that, um, that, that in hearing of uh, the death of of a sibling of dear friends, right? So that's further relation than John the Baptist. Of hearing of Lazarus' deaths, um, Jesus weeps. It's the shortest verse in English. It's not actually the shortest verse. Um, in the original language, the shortest verse is pray without ceasing, but um, that's like random party trivia that's not cool or impressive to anybody, okay? Um, when someone says, you know, the shortest verse is Jesus wept, and you're like, well, actually, you know, in the original, blah, 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 people say, you're an idiot and a nerd, go away. Um, I know. So, um, in the face of hearing of Lazarus' death, Jesus weeps. He doesn't say it in Matthew, but I cannot imagine that on hearing the words of his dear cousin dying, that as Jesus, as that boat sailed off into solidarity, that Jesus was dripping salty tears in the bottom of the boat. And to think that what God's calling us to is somehow to toughen ourselves up, to push ourselves, to grit ourselves through, robs us. It robs us not only of what God wants to do in us, and how he wants to restore and redeem, but, but it robs us of a moment of worship to go before God and say, God, you know what? I know that you can handle this, and I know that you're big enough, but I'm angry, and I'm busted, and I think that what you're doing is stupid, and I don't understand it, and I don't like it, and I don't want it to happen. And trust and believe that he's still big enough. Maybe... Maybe you haven't, in this last season, lost a dear loved one like Jesus did. But maybe there's been other moments of great mourning, of great sadness. Maybe, maybe, maybe it came in the form of, of a dream that was crushed. That this last year, it just really became apparent that 
something that you'd imagined or hoped or planned. Maybe it was a career or an opportunity or a place to live or something of that. It just clearly is not going to work. Maybe, maybe, maybe it's a relationship that's come to an end. Maybe, maybe you had roommates or, or friends or a season of just kind of like a group of friends that you're really tight with and those people have moved on and it seems like they've moved up and out and you're still sitting here and it just feels lonely. Maybe, maybe it's been a conversation that you've had with your parents about their divorce or about a, with a spouse who's wanting to have a conversation about divorce and it feels like things are falling apart. Maybe you had a dream of, of having children and starting a family and that's just become apparent that's not going to happen. It is no demonstration of your faith or maturity to grit a smile and to push on. Even our Savior in the face of the brokenness of this world retreated. Maybe, maybe, maybe what you need today is, is to retreat, is to withdraw to a solitary place, to worship God through screaming to worship God through tears, to worship God through brokenness, to worship God through angerness, to, to worship God through giving him all of who you are because he's big enough. And you know what? Here's the ridiculous thing. He already knows. We show up to church. We show up to work. We show up to our neighbors. And we smile and we're like, oh, I, I got over that a long time ago. And Jesus knows you're a liar. And to come to him. And to give him as an act of worship all that we are, even the most ugly parts. So that the Holy Spirit, so that God can begin to work and shape and transform in you. We're robbing ourselves when we fail to withdraw. So what's it look like? What's it look like for you to withdraw? What's it look like for you in the midst of brokenness, in the face of anger, of disappointment, of fear, of doubt, of bitterness, what's it look like for you, like Jesus did, to withdraw to a solitary place? Maybe, maybe, maybe for you, it looks like setting a time, setting get a clock, and getting up a little bit earlier, and having just a little window of time. Maybe, maybe it looks like maybe this week. Maybe all you need to do this week is you need to schedule a, a time away. You need to schedule a retreat. You need to schedule a day or two where you're going to go somewhere. You're going to turn off your phone and you're going to shut everything off, and you're just going to be with the Lord, and you're just going to uh, pour all of who you are out to Him, and 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 trust Him with everything that you are. Because here's 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 the deal. If Jesus can retreat and all of the universe didn't spin into chaos, I, I think that our world will be fine with you turning off your phone for a day or two. Maybe, maybe you got kids and getting away for a day or two is not realistic. Maybe you need to find some other friends and say, hey, hey, uh, can we trade afternoons? This Saturday, we'll take your kids and you guys just have the weekend, the afternoon to go and, and, and rest and retreat and be with the Lord and and then the next weekend we'll switch. Maybe you need to designate a place in your house or your apartment or wherever you live that's like your, your prayer closet or your prayer corner. But what's it look like for you? Because if we truly believe that God is worthy of everything, that if we truly believe that we want to give all of ourselves to the Lord, 
It is not only in the mountaintop praises or the rejoicing of the great moments of God feeding the 5,000, the amazing mountaintop moments, but it is in the face of brokenness that feels too heavy to carry that we come before him and we lay it at his feet and we say, God, I just can't deal with this anymore. There's a, a guy named John Wesley. You maybe have heard his name, maybe not. He um, was a catalyst for just an incredible move of God. And he's talked a lot about what led to that. It, you know, it ended up spawning denominations and, and movements all around the world, just this incredible um, lightning rod of God's spirit moving. And, and he talks a lot about his family, and he, he's talked about his mom. Her name was Susanna Wesley. And he talked about that everything that God did through him in the years to come was founded on his mom's ability to retreat. Now, uh, Susan, Susanna Wesley had uh, quite a few kids, and, and they didn't have a big home. It was quite a while ago, and, and uh, so the home was often loud and chaotic, and they didn't have, like, a, a place that they could designate as their, like, sanctuary place for her to go, and, and she often was very busy, had a lot of demands, caring for a lot of kids, and, and so uh, she established a, a tradition in their family, and she was often wearing an apron. And um, anytime that she needed time alone with the Lord, whether it was at four in the morning or it was at two in the afternoon, she would take that apron and she would lift it and put it over the top of her head. And then whether you walked in the kitchen and saw her with her apron overhead in the, in the, in the hallway or out on the back porch, if you saw her with your apron over, her apron overhead, you didn't say anything to her because you knew that it was her time and her place to retreat, to be with her Lord. Some of us, most of us need to find a way this week to retreat, to not only worship and celebrate God for all the good things he's done in us, but to pour out all of our brokenness and mourning as well. If Jesus, in the face of the brokenness, the wickedness of this world, had to retreat, what makes us think that we don't have to? So what will you do this week to withdraw, to be honest with the Lord?